This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. My voice is going to be a little off. I'm allergic to Canada, so <laughs> sorry. The entire country? It appears so, yes. You have a pollen allergy? Is that, is that what I'm guessing? I get bad allergies, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're probably a month behind allergy season here, so. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. <laughs> well, you know, for allergy-related things, there are the things that Canada's a month behind for, and then there are the things where it's like, because it's like 2008 here, basically. <laughs> okay. Like, you know that whole thing where the 80s didn't come to Canada until the 90s? No, I, I, I just kind of assumed Canada was like the United States, but some of them spoke French. I mean, it is, but also, like, things that were popular 10 years ago mm. are just now becoming a thing. Okay. Like Robin Sparkles. Like Robin Sparkles. <laughs> Got it. Let's go to the mall. <laughs> so. So. Moving back to America. You want to announce that on the podcast? Sure. I mean, it's not really secret. It's not public necessarily, <laughs> but it's not really secret anymore. Okay. Where are you moving to? Albuquerque. Okay. Are you going to stay working for? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue working for Shopify. Oh, that's cool. It's glad, glad yeah. that worked out. Yeah. So you know, Canada has things going on that don't necessarily mesh super well. Mainly their laws around disabilities, which I don't want to get into a whole th- a whole rant about. But yeah, I'm looking forward to being back in the states and living in a place that is much cheaper to live. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people get this. Like you, like. Your money goes so much farther in a city like Albuquerque. Yeah, absolutely. People are have you know making two hundred, you know, one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars with their Silicon Valley job. If they're comparing it to living in San Francisco, that's half a million dollars in Albuquerque. Right. Yeah. My wife and I have gone through this. My wife is from Arizona, so you know, as we were deciding to have a family and things like that, it was like, well, should we move to Arizona, where I could make a little less, probably, but by in comparison, have way more buying power. Yeah. Right. Well, because Cambridge is one of the mo- most expensive places to live in the country, right? In Boston in general. I mean, I live, I mean, that's why I live 20 miles north of Boston or 15 miles north of Boston. Sure. Now, right. Instead of living within three or four miles where I used to live. So, yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting how it affects to like remote work, right? I've heard all sorts of varying ways that companies handle this if they have remote employees. It's like, do you adjust their pay based on where they live because you're hiring them from that market? Sure. Or do you pay an overall salary, which may not be enough for somebody who lives in New York to be competitive in that market, right? I and mean, how do you approach that? There's the global market, right? Like remote is a market that you can compete with other companies that have remote work who aren't going to be adjusting their pay based on where somebody lives. Right. So in that case, if you're saying you want to be a remote employee, you are at a salary disadvantage if you also want to live in a big city, potentially. Potentially. Like, I could go either way on whether or not, like, you should get paid more for living in New York and San Francisco. I kind of feel like there needs to be an advantage to you being there in terms of how well you would do your job to have your salary increase because of that. Right. If you turned living in a major metropolitan area into, like, a recruitment channel for the company, you know, that would obviously be valuable. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I hate the idea of like, oh, I chose to live somewhere that I want to live and now I'm making less money. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we've had people relocate here, and I don't, I don't know exactly what the process is when you relocate from office to office. But I think they do look at, like, the conditions and the local conditions everywhere. Right. Because we are not a remote company, right? At least as of the time we're talking and as of the future that I'm aware of. But as I said to somebody on Twitter who inquired, you know, we'd never say never. But right now, you know, we're not a remote friendly uh, place. You know, people work from home when they need to or can, but we, we're very much based locally in the places that we have offices. I mean, I think that's fine because when you have remote employees, right, if, if one person on your team is remote, everybody on your team is remote. Yeah, that's what a lot of people miss is like, you know, they hire that that first remote employee or the first employee that works from home three days a week. And now you to put them on equal footing, you have to treat everybody as if they're remote. Right. And some people like I, I actually don't like remote work that much. And that's mm-hmm. going to be the one downside of this move is that I'm going to be more or less stuck with remote work, which I'll live with. What don't you like about it? Basically, I know I can get just a desk at a co-working space, which is what I'm going to do. But I like having an office. Yeah. I like being around people and working with people and then being like, hey, you want to get a drink after work? Yep. Uh, which I guess I, can't, I actually probably can't do that much of anymore anyway now that I have a kid. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, the co-working thing is a very often cited thing to do for people like that. Like I used to feel that way too. Like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I need to see people during the day. And I need to get out of the house. Yeah, I need yeah. to get out of the house. But now, you know, now that I live a little further away from the office, I've been taking advantage of being able to work from home more often. Like I used to come in, like there would be like a foot of snow on the ground. It's still actively snowing. Nobody else is in the office. And I'm like, no, I'm going in. Subway's running. I'm good. And now I don't do that because it's a harder commute. Um, And it just makes more sense to stay home. And like with the advantages to me of being at home are interesting because now, like if it's not a day where school was totally canceled, you know, the kids are going to get out of school at 245, three o'clock. And I'm going to see them for a little bit, and then they're going to go do something else. But it's just nice to be able to check in with them in the middle of the day. Like, there's all sorts of little advantages that are nice. Or uh, now that I live in suburbia, I can take the time that I would usually be commuting to work, and I can uh, mow the lawn, which is nice. (laughs) See, that's the thing about Albuquerque. It's going to be great. Never have to worry about getting snowed in. It doesn't snow. (laughs) It it does snow, like, once every four years, we'll get, like, a half inch of snow, and everybody loses their shit because (laughs) nobody's ever seen snow before. Right. But, like, it rains three days a year, and it never snows, and you can get anywhere in the parts of town that you'd want to go to in, like, 15 minutes. Do you have grass? Yeah. Oh, so you're going to have to cut your grass. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't have grass in the house that I got, but... You have to rake the rocks then that are in your front yard. <laughs> yeah, xeriscaping is very popular in right. Albuquerque. Yeah, it's the same in Arizona. Like the backyard and the side areas are all brick, other than like two patches of dirt, which was our main concern with the house. And so we're probably going to rip up the brick on one side of it and put in some grass and have a dog run. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unless I got unless I got like one of those crazy seeded lawn mowers, mowing lawns is not really a mm. a thing that would be in my wheelhouse. Yeah, can see that Although, now. I could kind of see myself getting if I ha- if I were to buy a house that had a larger lawn, I could see myself investing in a gigantic seated lawnmower just to be yeah, that guy with a cup holder. And I see lots of people in my neighborhood who have yards that are like not quite big enough for a ride-on mower, but they got one anyway. You know, and you're like, it's way harder to cut your grass with a ride-on mower, but you just wanted to buy a ride-on mower, and I kind of respect that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is it like okay? So I have a question because I'm not sure what the right phrasing is. Like. I haven't closed on the house yet. You are under contract. Okay, so it's not. So, so if I say I if I say I bought a house, that is incorrect. I mean, not te- technically yet. But have have you done the purchase and sale, like the thing that says like I've have you given them a down payment? Uh, no, that that doesn't happen until closing, doesn't it? 
sorry, maybe down payment was the wrong. I, I, term, I, I mean, I like, put the earnest money in escrow and yes, like not the, paperwork with the, with the mortgage company, right, not the thousand dollars you give them when you make an offer on the property, but the additional probably larger amount. Maybe it's different in different markets. I don't know. The sure. way it works in Massachusetts is you give like a thousand dollars when you make the offer to be like, hey, I'm serious, even though like a thousand dollars has never stopped anybody from wigging out on a offer before right. uh, for an entire house. It's going to cost well more than that. Well, apparently, apparently the number is getting lower and lower because there's just so many ways to get out of it now to get that money back. <laughs> nice. Because you can just basically say like, well, X inspection didn't happen the way we right. wanted it to. Well, and that's different in different markets, too, because like in competitive markets, people will make offers that say like, I won't even do it or I will do an inspection, but I won't hold you to anything that's found in the inspection or I won't do an inspection uh. at all or things like that. So like that's kind of what happens in the Boston areas. You have to be willing to waive some of those things or take on that risk. Or you walk away from whatever money you've already put into the situation, put into I'm the I'm actually contract. surprised. I should have gotten a call by now because the inspections are all happening today, and I was supposed to get a call when that happened. Oh, maybe, maybe we can record it live on the air. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, so if you haven't had an inspection yet, then I think once you go through all the inspection things, you can basically say, you can say, like, I am buying a house. Sure. And then you will have bought the house. I mean, right. technically, you will not have bought the house until 30 years from now. <laughs> 15 years. Okay, 15. Yeah, whatever the case may be. <laughs> I have a Rails question for you. Okay, yeah, let's talk about programming. <laughs> we did a little bit of that. We talked about remote work. Oh, yeah, no, but also other people who are programmers and work in remote or think about working remote. Seriously, Albuquerque is a great place to work remote, and I want to try and build a better remote work group there, I don't know, community there. Yeah. So, like, you want to start your own co working space? <laughs> <laughs> there, there are co-working spaces in Albuquerque that okay. already exist. Anyway, if you're interested in learning more about what it's like to live there or I think about working remote, you should ping me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Cool. All, All right, right. What's your Rails question? So I was working through uh, a blog post because I have lots of things over, year, over the years that I've kind of learned how to do in the console, in the Rails console. Mm-hmm. So I'm calling it console-driven development, which is like the times when I just drop into a console and need to try and figure things out and just some tips that I have for doing that. And one of the things that I find is that people don't often know about reload bang. Like if you make changes to your source, you can call reload bang and yep. they get reloaded. The problem with that is like, let's say you did like user equals user dot first, and then you change the user class somehow and you do reload bang and you call like a new method on the user class. It's not going to be found because you have, you have an instance of that class. You need to get a, construct a new instance of the class to get the new Method. So this is if you accept if you access the instance of user that was constructed before calling reload bang after calling reload bang. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. So what you can do is like user equals user dot first again or whatever the case may be. But sometimes it's kind of a pain in the butt. So I was like, you know, there's there's also reload on active record instances, which reloads the active record instance. Right. So I wonder, I was like, if I were implementing that method, what I would probably do is implement it as self dot class dot find self dot ID, right? It roughly uh, does that under the hood, yeah. But it doesn't. It does not do that. <laughs> it doesn't work. I tried it out. So I mean, no, I mean I wouldn't expect it to work if you've done reload bang, but that yeah. is roughly what it does under the hood. So I'm looking at the implementation here. It's in the persistence module. Yeah. Line Hold on, f- I haven't looked at this code in six months. Yeah, yeah. Persistence module line four fifty five is what I'm looking at. Yeah. And that's after stepping through a bunch of supers. Yeah, no, um, it's doing essentially self.class. It's literally got self.class.findID. Oh, look at line that. Line 462. Look at that. But then it... I mean, it still has to mutate self with the results of but that. It does, because, yeah, it doesn't return the fresh object. Right, because it's not supposed to. It's supposed to Why? mutate self. 
Why? That's because Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> like I would expect that. That's the big thing is I would expect it to return the thing it found from the database. Except people know when. When's the last time you, you see it all the time in your tests? It's like food out reload, food out whatever. When's the last time you've actually seen somebody assign the result of food out reload to foo? Hmm. Okay. Yes, I'm definitely guilty of this. So like foo dot reload and then expect foo. Right. Not like reloaded foo equals foo dot reload. Expect reloaded foo to. Right. Whatever. Like um, I could I could totally see there being reload and reload bang if in a world where we could redo everything where reload <laughs> just returns the new object and reload bang. Okay. You know mutates. Yes. But to be fair, I also am not super concerned about the use case of like you've loaded an object from the database and then done weird shit to either <laughs> modify or unload the class out from underneath it. It is interesting because as I started thinking about the use cases for reload, I was like, really? The valid use cases for reload are, I think, basically what we just said. In tests, you need to like use something else that has modified an object that you already have and you've already instantiated and you need to reload it. Like, I don't remember calling reload in my code anywhere, and I think if I did, I'd be like, oh, I don't... Yeah, <laughs> the existence of reload did, to a certain extent, inform a lot of... Because you know the way that diesel works. We have ways that you can do with it. We actually used to have a thing that was similar-ish to Rails, but it's mostly gone now. But we do have a, we do have a thing where you can kind of mutate an object and then call dot save changes, but even that doesn't mutate itself. It returns the result of what was saved to the database, mm -hmm. depending on if you're using Postgres or not, using the returning keyword or by doing a second query. But that's, it's always like the way Diesel's meant to do it is you have a, you have a change set and then you, you update the record and then that returns what you wanted from the database. I wish that's what Rails did because Rails trusts way too much that what we have in memory matches what was saved to the database after save is called. Right. If you had a trigger that did something different, right, it wouldn't know about that. And that's why Rails doesn't use triggers for things that Rails should be using triggers for, like updated at. Do you think that's why, or do you think it's more a very opinionated call that, like, you shouldn't I mean, do that both, database? but, like, we, literally we couldn't have updated at get handled at the database level if we wanted to, because Rails is not built around the database doing things that, that Rails doesn't know about without calling returning or reloading. Anyway, this is all tangential to reload because even with diesel's design, like reload doesn't make sense in either case, really, outside of maybe <laughs> tests. Hmm. Could you update active? Like, how breaking of a change would it be for Active Record to use returning? Given that returning is only supported by one of the three backends that we support, uh, pretty uh... major. <laughs> Neither MySQL nor SQLite support the returning keyword. But wouldn't it be? I'm trying to think if that would be a problem, like. If you're using Postgres, congratulations, you now get to use triggers and we'll pick up the changes from them. I guess right. it would be confusing, but I mean, there's already things that behave differently, right? Isn't there already things that behave differently, like JSON support and things like that? Well, sure. That's a little more expected, though. Mm, I guess if you're talking about the way every call to save behaves. Right. <laughs> it'd be nice to have that be consistent across everything. Uh, I mean, so Rails has the benefit of that's all fine, though, because we do have the ability to just do two queries because Rails doesn't really provide much in the way of an API for performing updates without knowing the primary key of the thing that you're updating. Mm -hmm. Right. The only API we have for that is update all and update all doesn't return anything. So that's fine. Right. Save. We could just do two queries on MySQL and Postgres. That, that would be fine. Or um, MySQL and SQLite, rather. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I don't know. You know, it's a it's a bigger deal to do that on MySQL than it is on SQLite. SQLite doing two queries is it has no cost over the existence of the returning keyword, which is why the returning keyword doesn't exist. I mean, other than issues of like, it's a bigger deal for um, inserts than it is for updates. Okay. Just because there's a function that SQLite provides, which is give me the ID of the last thing that was inserted. And it's actually perfectly fine if you're dealing directly with SQLite 3 C API and you always know case by case what that value is referencing. In a more generic context, we can't know that because it depends on whether or not the table has a primary key, whether or not it has a column called row ID, which is not the primary key, whether or not we, there's a, we have to use the magic double underscore row ID, whether it just references the normal auto incrementing primary key. Anyway, all that aside, it's not unreasonable for SQLite to not returning. It's more unreasonable for, for MySQL not to have it, because MySQL, there's an actual cost of doing two queries over one query, because there's round-trip time. Right. Anyway, I don't know. It, it's a thing that's like in, an interesting thought. Uh, I don't think it would be a thing that we would ever pursue. Yeah, seems like not worth it at this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, though, these conversations, how many things come back to like, well, yeah, ideally it'd be that way, but it's never going to change. I agree with you. Reload's mostly only useful for tests, and as you actually pointed out in the in the Rails console, right? But yeah, if you use Reload Bang, just assume all in. Like, I wish we actually. I wonder if we could make it so that all local variables become invalidated when you do Reload Bang, because you should just assume that all local variables are invalid when you do Reload Bang. Reload Bang should be treated as opening a new terminal or new console session. Can you like reflect on the local variables in a console session? Probably actually in Ruby, probably yes. <laughs> Cause then you could do that and be like, are any of these active record instances? If so, call reload on them. Well, it's not even if they're active record instances, <laughs> it's if they're instances of refine. any class that could potentially be modified by your code being reloaded, which mm -hmm. is all objects because we mm -hmm. don't act, you know, cause it's Ruby. I'm going to open a new PR with a new method called refined. And then, <laughs> I'll spell it refined, F-I-N-D, but it'll get confused with refined, F-R-I-N-D, F-R-I-N-E-D. Never mind. You remember, you remember becomes, right? Oh, I've used becomes. Yeah. Have you yeah. used becomes bang? I don't know the difference. I might have. Becomes bang is like becomes, but it mutates, which doesn't really work because you can't change the class of an existing object. <laughs> I've used so becomes if I'm I'm doing this out of memory for the people who don't know what it is basically but like you can have an instance of a active record class and then you can say it becomes an instance of a different active record class which can be useful if you're doing something like single table inheritance and you have yeah. like the parent class and you know it to be the type of a subclass and you just say yeah, it just becomes this thing in a subclass. And I and I'm being facetious uh becomes bang the thing that does it changes the STI column. Okay. <laughs> so that's how it mutates it. Yeah, which it, like doesn't generally speaking matter. Well, it does if you want to actually, you know, save it. But right. yeah, what's hilarious is just becomes like does not verify in any way, shape, or form that the two classes are in any way like meant to be linked via STI. Right. I think you could say like user becomes post and yeah. just be like, yeah, yeah right. it works. <laughs> <laughs> It'll actually work reasonably well too. Yeah, like all the active record stuff would still be there. I guess when you went to call save, it would try to write it to the post table. Right, and, and then everything will blow right. up. But like, it works reasonably well in terms of what method to define. Actually, now I'm curious what error you'll get if you try and call, if you did like user becomes post and then you call dot title on it. I'm curious. You, you'd probably get like an attribute, uh, not, not the no method error, but I don't remember what it is, active model attribute missing or something like that. The one that you get when a, uh, an attribute is known to exist but was not included in the select clause. Hang on, I'm I'm trying it out. Yeah, I figured that from the looking down and hearing <laughs> that and the sounds of typing. 
Okay, so now I need to call on the mutated thing. You want me to call a method that exists, like some some attribute that's only on post but okay. not user. I'm not actually using post in here, so I don't have okay. this. I'm trying to think of what the this is an old app. What are the model things? Um, just call uh, class level dot attribute methods. That should give you a list. Outcome coverage ID. That's a thing. Nil. <laughs> <laughs> so I did user. Okay. I did user becomes assignment. U equals user dot first. U dot becomes assignment, and then assign assign that to A. And then a dot outcome coverage ID, which is only a thing that exists on assignment. That should um, probably error. <laughs> I mean, granted, you know, we're talking nonsense in, nonsense out, but still, that should probably error. Anyway, yeah, becomes one of my favorite. Like this method has no reason to exist. <laughs> methods. I bet it's used in a lot of STI things. I've definitely used it in uh, an experiment I did where. Uh, I think we talked about it on the show where we talked about like moving something that was a state machine into potentially like would single table inheritance make sense and we decided that was dumb but I think I've done that in the past where I had like a bunch of contextual validations that were only valid when a thing was in a certain state and I just defined a bunch of it wasn't STI under the hood but I just used inheritance so there was no STI column okay but I just had it I said like it becomes a unverified order I don't remember what it was at all but sure. something like that I also recently upgraded on an app to Rails 5.1. How'd that go? Uh, awesome. Good. The uh, I can't remember if I talked about it on the show already or not. but Maybe. I don't know. 5.1 should be really painless for most people. No database cleaner. Is yep, that's always good. Awesome. I don't know why. It just was. It's just like, oh, this entire gem goes away and this configuration goes away. And, oh, I get to turn back on, use transactional fixtures. Right. I mean, like, I mean transactions, <laughs> it, your tests are legitimately faster. And right. also, you can now run them concurrently. Right. Uh, but we, I found, like, <laughs> it's funny. I was, like, so excited about it. And then two days later, I was like, oh, I used to rely on that. Because, like, occasionally during a test, I'll want to, if I'm doing something kind of crazy in, the, in query land, I will like throw a binding.pry in there and then I'll just want to write SQL. So I'll open up a Postgres, a PSQL console. Oh, and you want, and you want, and I can't see committed. the data anymore because it's in a transaction. It hasn't been committed. Uh, you know, there, <laughs> I had a, I had actually a fun case of this where I, I was really, really trying because there are ways in everything that isn't Postgres to make, if just an isolation level to read uncommitted or read dirty, like you can usually see other transactions. Mm-hmm. I was trying really, really hard to make that happen in Postgres for crates.io because I, I don't know if I mentioned that crates.io ported over to diesel or when we started porting it over to diesel and now it's by the time this goes out, it will probably be completely done. It's it's done in that there are pull requests open for all of the remaining endpoints that aren't using diesel. There was, there was just this one endpoint that was like this monster, had these monster tests around it. And I didn't really want to do this giant pull request that hit this endpoint and then the te- the monster test around the endpoint. And then because I edited that monster test, I then would have to port like five other endpoints over to diesel and then all the tests for those endpoints. Right. I didn't want to do that in, all, in one PR. So I, try, I remember spending like two or three hours trying really, really hard to figure out a way to make these two separate database drivers somehow share a transaction. Right. Now, that's the thing that anybody should ever do in the real world, but <laughs> would have been useful for that one case of I was porting from one driver to another and I had a test that was using both. Yeah. The database cleaner thing reminded me. I also got pinged by Sam to try out the RSpec Rails branch with the integration with uh, the system test stuff that shipped in Rails 5.1. Mm-hmm. 
So that's going to be cool. I can't wait till that comes along. Tried it out. There's a few things that uh, bug me about it, but some of them, it's Sam's already opened up a PR against Rails for some of them. And like, I don't know, it's just interesting things about like differences between the way Rails handles testing and the way RSpec handles testing, right? Like sure. uh, things get output in the middle of my test run. And it's like, whoa, that would be totally unacceptable if this was I like... I thought we fixed that. I think Sam opened a PR to like, now there's a... You can, right. You can and, then, configure. and then I YOLO merged it. Right. Yes, you did. Or as he put it, I he was like, you YOLO merged my PR. I said, no, I didn't. I said good enough for me and then merged it. There's a difference. <laughs> and then there was some conversation afterwards. But basically what was happening is like Puma starts up and it starts up like the first time it encounters a system test. Oh, right. And then so it might output. start up in the middle of your thing and then it has output. So like there's a configuration now where you can silence Puma, et cetera, which is like seems like you should just always do. But then there's some debate about whether or not you actually want to do that all the time. And then like other things happen, like when system tests fail, they automatically take a screenshot and they output when they do that. They say like test failed, screenshot save to wherever. And that's like yep. in the middle of your RSpec green dots. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's bad. That's yeah. That's so like, failure message. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. I posted that. I was like, you know, ideally, if this was an RSpec feature through and through, these would all be at the end. So uh, whether or not you can do that, I have no idea. <laughs> a thing that Rust does, saying maybe RSpec should do this, just saying. A thing that Rust does is uh, it captures standard out mm-hmm. for each individual test. And then if a test fails, it emits the standard out from that thread. Hmm. And then there's a additional command line option you can pass that just disables the standard out capturing. Interesting. I could Which use is that. pretty good for stuff like this. We're the I just started a new app today on a new project. And uh, you know the first thing I try and do is get the thing up and running and run the test suite. And so much output. <laughs> And we've talked in the past about how, like, my favorite, I got to have green dots, only green dots, right? Sure. And, like, it's just, like, warnings are there and then a bunch of puts statements and inspects and all sorts of stuff that's just there. So I was like, well, if I wait to try and address this two weeks from now, they're going to be like, oh, you have the tickets. So it's like, that's the first thing we're going to do is, like, we're going to get this test suite running consistently green and with only green. And some yellow because they have some pending specs and I'll have to look into those to see if they actually need to exist. But... I'm a big fan of clean output and tests, as I've discussed many times on the show, I believe. And yeah. you should be, too. <laughs> clean output's good. Then you know when something is deprecated, right? And then you know when it's going to break. When You go to, you know it's not going to break when you up, do the next upgrade because you've already right. handled the deprecation. And granted, you know, even if you're capturing... I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate of capturing standard error, not standard error, and deprecations should be going to standard error. So. Right. I would prefer just not to capture anything and just have your test not output anything until there's something meaningful to output. But sure, right, sure. But the point is capturing a standard out ensures that 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 happens regardless of whatever is misbehaving that you can't control. That would be such a large breaking change to all of the Ruby puts debuggers out there who use RSpec. Would it, though? You don't think so? Well, I mean, make it an option that's disabled by default. Right, they'd have to learn, but they have to know that that change was made. Make it an option that's disabled by default. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. And And then maybe, you know, like in the next... RSpec major, December major bump, change it to be enabled by default, and then it's a command line option that they have to pass. Or, it, you know, the output only shows up when the test fails, which presumably if you're puts debuggering things, your test is failing. Hopefully. Simple, very it, simple way to make it fail. Because, <laughs> in yeah, true. <laughs> I actually do generally, if I'm, if I'm really debugging something in Rails, and actually or in RSpec, and also now in, in Rust, I don't just, like, print line something. <laughs> in Rails, I'll be like raise this string, or in mm-hmm. in in Rust, I'll like panic this string because I don't trust print line to make it to where I want it to go. 
but I don't know. I, I really liked that default of just like test failed. Here is that thread standard out. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. here, here, well, here's the failure message, and then here's the standard out for that thread. Right. And then if you wanted to keep, if you had tests that were flaky and you couldn't figure out why they were we failing, we do have tests that are flaky right now. Flaky right now. We have deadlocks happening in our tests. In the Rails tests? Or in... no, no, in the diesel okay. tests. Okay. So if you had those you would have persistent debugging if you kept those logging statements in there, right? And then whenever they failed, you could log whatever information you wanted to log. And right, would, and then it only shows it. up when it fails. Right. Um, I mean, you could get that too by instead of using puts, using actual using an actual logger. But <laughs> Sure, but like this isn't worthy of that. True. I want to fig figure out a, a new logging infrastructure just to debug some test that's intermittently failing. Right. Yeah, maybe that's less, more a problem in an immature ecosystem like Rust and less of a problem in an ecosystem like Rails, but still. Okay. I have a thing I want to talk about if you yeah. if you don't have any more to say on the topic of... I have no more Rails 5.1 chatter and, and logging and stuff. We'll put a link to the show notes for the pull request for the system test stuff. Maybe uh, maybe it'll be merged. And if not, Sam will hear this and uh, take a prodding and he'll fix it. Yeah. Because <laughs> he has nothing else to do other than... I'm just saying, Sam... I'm just saying, <laughs> it would make sense if, if our spec captured standard out. Anyway, so there's a, a person who, to be fair, like, I'm fine with the way they went about it, but it just got me thinking about this more general topic of open source people with Patreon accounts. Okay. Which has always rubbed me the wrong way, but it's also a thing I feel like I should do. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to, like, figure out why I f feel the feelings I feel. Okay. <laughs> Let's um, talk through your feelings. No, so I, I think I, I did ultimately narrow it down. So the reason that this guy, he's pretty com prominent in the Rust community, and the reason that the way he did it doesn't really bug me is because I went and looked at his repo that now has in the readme, you know, support me on Patreon, and I clicked contributors, and it is like actually just a project that's just him. I think the reason it rubs me the wrong way with most of these projects is that it's projects that have other contributors. Like if I were to start a Patreon account, mm -hmm. it would make sense for me to try and promote it on Diesel. Mm -hmm. But then that means, okay, like, reasonably, that should mean I figure out how the funds that come in through Patreon are split at, at absolute minimum between the diesel core team. Yep. And that's just the minimum because ultimately I think that if a pro if you're contributing to a project that in its readme has, like, pay to support this project, somebody who then contributes code to that project should in some way be compensated for it. Why should it just be code? Or not code. Actually, that that's the other point, too, is because you... Right. If I open you know, a really I, good I was, issue... Right. I was curious and I looked at the diesel uh, contributor graph just to see like what is the difference between my contribution to diesel versus the, the, the other contributors compared to this other project. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing when um, the longest standing current member of the diesel core team, um, Pascal, when he was added to the core team, he only had five or six commits, but he was re he was super active in Gitter. Right. And reviewing every pull request that I opened and giving really good code review and reviewing yeah, every pull request, regardless of whether or not I opened it, actually giving really solid code review, taking a ton of pressure off me to manage the project, and then ultimately was like, like his commit count didn't, he, he's, I think, number, the number two contributor now, but that didn't happen until after I, after I went on leave, and he sort of took over the project when, when Ruby was born. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like his contributions primarily, at least when he was added to the core team, were not code, and, that, and, and they were super valuable. Okay. So, knowing this information, are you going to start putting a Patreon on Diesel? Or <laughs> No, no, I'm not. I get paid full-time to do open source. Right. So there would be no reason for me to have a Patreon. But it's a thing I've thought about doing just because I do 
want to find a solution that is independent of like a company mm-hmm. benefactor in the long term. Right. I've thought about doing it. If nothing else, like as a tip jar, it kind of makes sense to me. But then just at the same time, whenever I hear about people in open source, I, it just it just rubs me the wrong way. I can see that. I mean, I, I have thought before about like projects that have a Patreon thing to say like, well, where does that go? When it's a project that's very clearly one person maintains and one per, but like larger projects that have a half a dozen contributors or something like that. Or people, like you said, that are active in code reviews or issues or documentation or whatever, uh, writing good blog posts around using the thing, right? Like that right. are external to the repo even. Conference talks or whatever. Is it just because the repo belongs to this person that they get the money? Or do, like, how's that being dispersed, I guess? And should it be a thing people do or should people not even think about it? I don't even know. I have similar feelings around Ruby together, which I think is is a little bit more topical in the like those specific questions because that is specifically repos that are much larger and have a high proportion of contributors that aren't directly benefiting from from that money which have very prominently displayed like this project is supported by ruby together yeah i guess so why don't i feel why don't i feel that way about ruby together so the idea of ruby together is that there's there's these large projects that we all depend on like bundler and ruby gems and things like that right Mm-hmm. And the funding from Ruby Central is not enough to keep those going. Is that what? It's completely separate from Ruby Central. Ruby Central right. pays for the server costs okay. for RubyGems.org, which right. is a lot more expensive. Right. And so the idea was like we could have this thing that people could contribute to, and then we could sponsor somebody to work on the features that either did they, who decides what features get work done. Do you know Andre? Okay, so Andre is the person who is sponsored to do the work. Uh, there are, as far as I can tell, two to three people who okay. get sponsored, and that they and they decide what to work on. And so the idea is like, I want to support ongoing development of Bundler, or ongoing development of Ruby Gems, or whatever, whatever the infrastructure projects. And they have a link here, so I can see what do we got: Bundler, Ruby Gems, and RubyGems.org. Right. And they have a list of like projects that they would like to do on their website. If you go to like RubyTogether.org/roadmap, it tells you like uh, they want to roll out a new gem index that will make installing gems two to ten times faster than today. Migrate all of RubyGems.org to the Fastly CDN. Build a gem caching server to easily allow data centers and offices to cache local copies of gems, etc. So these all sound interesting, and I guess you can decide at that point like, yep, I want to support doing this. But the problem. But you can no longer. It, like it, it gives me the impression that I can no longer decide. Actually, that sounds like a thing I can do. You can decide that, and maybe you will, but you won't get the benefit of being sponsored to do it. Right? I won't, but but I I don't necessarily need to. But my point being is that now you know I remember I think it might have been you actually who opened the issue uh, on Bundler. <laughs> there was it doesn't really matter what the actual issue is. But I just remember like the first response to it was like, "Cool, yeah, I think this will take about six hours of work. So if people contribute this amount to Ruby together, this will get done." Holding Which an is issue like, hostage, basically. It's not even holding. I mean, it's not that so much that's holding an issue hostage because it's reasonable, and I'm a big fan of sustainable open source. And like that is how you kind of do things sustainably. You you point out how much time it's going to take, and then you put a real dollar amount on it. But I guess it's then specifically you tie it to, given that's open source, and the idea is that anybody can come and contribute. When you then go from there and then tie it to, so if you pay this organization, it gets done. It certainly does not make me feel like I can come onto your project, open a pull request, and make a big impact. Mm. What if? So I'm trying to just address the underlying concern here. So what sure. if? But I don't. I'm not. I don't even know if I'm like if my feelings are reasonable or not. Yeah, so I have feel no, free to be like. <laughs> I have no strong feelings one way or the other either. I'm just kind of feeling this out. 
So what if this wasn't something you had to decide to do? What if every user's profile, and not, a pro on a, not on a project level, but on a user profile level, GitHub had Patreon integration that you could just give them a username? And it was like, okay, cool. And then if people decide like, hey, I've seen this Sgriff person show up a lot of places and right. they're helping me out. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all on board with that. Okay. The problem is like that's more or less useless unless you're able to promote it. But what if it were promoted? Like, so right now we have badges that say like contributor and things like that. What if there was like a little, you know, Patreon logo? Or... Oh, so you mean like super integrated with, with GitHub where it was like mm -hmm. you comment on an issue and you're like, yeah, I like that person. Right. I mean, the problem there is popularity contests and things right. like that. But it's already a popularity contest. If you put a Patreon badge, it's already, I mean. Well, it's a popularity contest and also who controls what repos. Right. And I think like if we talked, if we had Mike Parham on the show, he'd be like, no, no, that's not how you, that's not how you monetize open source. You don't do it right. by donation. No, I, you oh, do I've, it by... talked, I've talked to him about, about <laughs> Patreon. You do it yeah. by, you know, enterprise licensing or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, his thoughts, the last time I talked about this, which Mike, hopefully I, I'm summing this up roughly correctly. I, I believe his words were Patreon makes a lot of sense as a tip jar. And we didn't really get into it on like the questions that I have around how okay is it when a project has more than one contributor. Right. I've become like Patreon is more in my face lately because I've become somebody who actually has subscriptions on YouTube and things like that. And it makes, and it makes much it more makes sense, much more sense there because it tends to be somebody who controls the production. It's like a single person or like a small, like husband and wife team or something like that that right. controls the production of the video. And in that way, it's not like uh, the community is generating this content. Right. Right. It's, it's like not, it's a person like or a group of individuals. It's not like you're going to go request their YouTube channel and right. have a video go on. Right. And like, the community around a YouTube video, you're like, yeah, there are comments, but like, that's not particularly what drives the value of the content, right? Right. Um, whereas the community around a GitHub, like, I mean, I guess the value of an open source repo is people using it, but there's also a community aspect to it that's out of the hands of the, well, not completely out of the hands of the maintainer, but not solely up to the maintainer. I think I came up with a good way to kind of sum up why I think it makes me feel so weird, <laughs> which is that. When you, when you put the Patreon badge in the readme of a GitHub project, in my mind, you've removed the open source aspect of it. Because to me, open source is about community more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And now it's just free software. Free is in beer. Right. And I look at my open source contributions. And like it's easy for me to say now working for ThoughtBot, who does pay me. Not like they're not saying, hey, I'm going to pay you to work on open source, but I get paid when I work on open source. Right. But I look at that as a way f at this point, like I'm not trying to support a family on it. I'm just doing it. And, and I look at that as like a kind of like a, I don't know, this is kind of a cruddy way to put it, but like a content marketing for myself, right? Like, where, sure. like it gives me things to point to. And like before I worked at ThoughtBot, having a few open source commits places that were somewhat substantial was something I could use to point at and be like, hey, right. And, you know, we've talked we've talked in the past about the issues with, like, the culture self-selecting for that. But Right, right. But, I mean, it is what it, I mean. It, it's what, what, it is what do. it is, yeah. And if I know that that's valuable to do, then if I can do it, I'm going to do it. And so, you know, I did a lot more of that. So for the most part, most of my open source work now actually is paid. <laughs> so right. As it should be. That's why I'm so conflicted about this. Because, like, I've been a pretty loud advocate of, like, open source maintainers need to pay their bills. Right. And there is a need for people who are full-time or close to full-time on open source. There are projects that just require that sort of amount of time to chew through the big picture. But are there problems from the current system, which the current system being as far from where I sit, a few large employers hire people uh, Oh, yeah, that system's work. completely broken and not sustainable. Well, but it's working. 
right? I mean, Rails keeps changing and getting updated. Sure. Ruby keeps changing and getting updated. I mean, maybe they won't make this three by three goal because they don't have enough people working on it with like a clear plan. Right. I mean, Rails' biggest problem is that we don't have enough people working on it. Mm. Ruby, I think, has less of that problem. There are other issues there. Ruby, now that there are other companies employing the core team besides just Heroku, is it? I was I, that always made me really uncomfortable. Well, I mean, it wasn't that, that was a brief period of time, right? Maybe a year or two where that was the case, because like there was also Engine Yard, right? Didn't they employ somebody? I'm just thinking of specifically Mats Koichi and Nobu. Right. But, you know, Aaron was employed right. by AT&T at the time. Right. Hmm. But just it was a lot of eggs in one basket. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know. I guess putting a bow on it. <laughs> As a user, I don't see a problem, right? I, I'm just like, yeah, things seem to be moving okay for me. I'm not one that, like, is rattling Rails's cage to be like, you got to keep up. You got to have this feature. You got to have that feature. Like, it's not features I want from Rails. It's, right. I don't know more of the same bug fixes and and maintenance and sustainability but removing, that does removing take... features would be totally fine with me <laughs> right. no and rail rails it's also a little different because rails is the sort of project where people who are interested in maintaining rails can make that their career because there's a number of large companies who depend on its continued existence and success right okay like right. there's just there's enough people invest there's enough money invested actually is right. probably the right way to put it that just rails is a little easier right but even aside, you know, I don't, I don't think the model of a company paying open source contributors is sustainable in the long run. But even aside from all of that, there is just the problem of like people who maintain a lot of projects that are smaller. Mm-hmm. And like even diesel, diesel's still, you know, diesel's a tiny project, but I could easily spend 40 hours a week just keeping diesel running. Mm-hmm. That's not a project that I would expect to be able to make a living off of. But like, you know, there are plenty of people who have three or four projects like that right and the <laughs> i know people hate the, the saying devil's advocate that's not what i'm trying to do here what i'm trying to do is formulate an opinion by approaching it from all sides i used to use the term devil's advocate for that uh, <laughs> but wouldn't the counter that be like okay but you made diesel an open source project and if it can't sustain somebody working on it paid full-time then it shouldn't be worked on paid full-time i mean that leaves like rails and dot net and like a few dozen other projects right and things that people don't need to be paid for to do sure but like there are open source maintainers got to pay their bills just i don't know i haven't seen too many open source maintainers you know holding cans on the street is all i'm saying (laughs) no but at the same time you see a lot of open source maintainers burn out because the alternative is you don't work on it at all during work hours and it takes over your entire life sure like the you know the idea that people do have three or four projects the size of diesel should be maintaining those projects entirely on nights and weekends is insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Clarence being an excellent example. <laughs> yeah, you can do what I do and you just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I don't fully ignore it, but I don't let it. I used to let so things would come in, and I used to be like, I have to handle this. But now I look at it and I'm like, that's not urgent. And people will ping me on it, and I'll still be like, that's still not urgent. Like, it's not my, like, I try and get back to it every couple of months where I go through, and I'm like, okay, the issue count's creeping up. Let me go through and handle things like that. Uh, sure. But it's also in a different state, and it's like, it doesn't need to evolve, and it doesn't right. need it's, to grow. Right, it's, it's a doesn't. maintenance mode It's project. done. It's it's done. As much as I've talked about, like, continuing it, it's uh, it's complete. Right. That's the job <laughs> pretty, pretty well. And, and if you wanted to do something else, there are other solutions that you can use. Anyway. Okay. I don't know. 
So those are my feelings on like the open source maintainers got to pay their bills. But boy, boy, I feel uncomfortable when people have Patreon links like a tied to a project specifically. I guess it's just what's in the project readme is really what it bothers me more than anything else. When the Patreon is supporting a person, it's peering in something that is larger than that person. Okay. If you want to support this podcast on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am really interested to hear like what our listeners have to say about this, though. So please do leave us a comment or tweet us at, at underscore bike shed. Like, I actually am interested to hear what other people have to think about this because it's it's a newer thing. I mean, you, two years ago, you didn't really hear about open source maintainers with Patreon accounts. Yeah. I mean, I, don't know. I know we talked about like Tom did a survey of our listeners to see like, are you interested in supporting the podcast via Patreon? Uh, and what would you want if you did? Like, would you want a Slack room? Would you want this? Would you want swag or whatever? And it turned out that it just wasn't, I don't think, I forget exactly what the results were. Maybe Tom can do an outro for us. No, uh, I don't. <laughs> I, mean, I, th- I do think, again, it would make more sense for the podcast to pay- have a Patreon than like me specifically, because the podcast has very specific costs and you know exactly what you're supporting and right. what you're getting out of it. And the reality is <laughs> of a podcast Patreon, zero of that money would go to you or I. It would go to right. like the costs of the podcast. Right. Right. Which is fine. But right. like the podcast has costs. Yep. I mean, I also have costs, but like it's mu- <laughs> it's much more nebulous. Right. If there's a bill for the podcast. Let's put it that right. way. Okay, cool. So, yeah, give us feedback. Uh, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 118. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes or just want to talk to us, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.